Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Mind Love, episode 137. Today's episode is all about how to become a lucky person. Love really is the only thing that can embrace its opposite. The paradox of that is immense because it tells us that love is something that goes beyond into a different realm of being. It's our entry portal to a different way of being, which is naturally lucky. It just it's where luck comes from. And so once you you open up your sails to the winds of luck. Luck is not like a lightning strike. It's like a wind that's there all the time. And if you know how to sail properly, you can get some really good experiences by following the currents of that wind and letting that support you and steer you. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. Hi, friends and wild people. First off, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, please hit the subscribe button. More subscribers means even better guests and tons more value. Plus, it helps me grow the show so more people can find it. And if you ask me, everyone could use a little more mind love. Question. Do you consider yourself a lucky person or an unlucky person? Or maybe you're somewhere in between. Like maybe you've had some fun synchronicities in your life, but you have pretty low expectations around your odds of winning that raffle. But what if you could learn to have more luck in your life? I don't mean to put on my braggy pants or anything, but I have almost always considered myself a very lucky person. Actually, the fact that I'm doing this right now, this podcast, was hugely influenced by my luck. Back in 2009, I decided I was going to teach myself digital marketing. So I'd stay up all night long, all hopped up on Adderall, reading internet marketing forums and taking courses. I was super cheap back then, so I'd do basically anything I could to either get the course for free or to find a way around paying for ads. And okay, to be fair, I just didn't really trust yet that whatever it was would be a worthy investment. Now I am all about buying courses, save so much time, but back then not so much. So anyways, one day I won a random drawing to go to Traffic and Conversion Summit, which is still to this day, one of the most popular internet marketing conferences that there is. It was held in Austin that year, so I flew out ready to soak up as much knowledge as possible. The last day of the conference, they had what they called the Wicked Smart Contest. So some brave, bold people would get in line to go on stage and share their best internet marketing secret. Well, as I watched people go up one by one, listening to their secrets, I started to think, hey, I think I've got some stuff to share. I had a unique edge because most of the tricks being shared so far involved money, whether it was ad spend or professional services like copywriting or whatever. Well, my unique edge was that I was all about finding the freest way possible. <laughs> so being a bold 23-year-old, I got up and got in line. And I won. 
So not only did I win a custom-painted MacBook Pro worth over $4,000, it also set up my freelance career for the next two years. So just in that story alone, you can see the luck seemingly outside of my control, but you can also see how I matched it with effort. By that time, though, I knew a secret. I wasn't just born lucky. I had to earn it. And I learned this harsh truth through the three unluckiest years of my life, right before all this happened, actually. If you've been listening for a while, you know I went through some stuff. Between age 15 to 21, I was raped, I lost a friend to suicide, I lost my dad to cancer, I developed bulimia, I started binge drinking and doing party drugs almost every night, and subsequently, each passing year, I dove lower and lower. During this time, I also started justifying other bad behavior, like being a klepto. I'd steal little things from big stores, like a lip gloss from Walmart, but then I'd make up for it by sharing it with my dorm mates. I felt like the Robin Hood of cheap beauty products. Or, another example, I'd buy those 24 packs of waters at the grocery store and conveniently forget to tell the cashier to look under my cart. And then I'd walk out with a little smirk and a swagger. And then I'd just make myself feel better by giving a few waters to the nearest homeless person. Well, here's the thing. It always came back full circle. I lost things in freak accidents, or my stuff would just disappear, or my car would get broken into. Yeah, I was a mess. Well, I had all this hot stuff going on when I met my ex, who after a year and a half, I found out was on meth and secretly robbing houses. Yeah, that's real. Like attracts like. Yeah, I could justify that his little hobby was way worse than mine, but you know what? I don't think the universe sees it that way. That's a story for a whole other day, but long story short, it was traumatic, and I never stole anything again. The idea of taking something from someone, even a big company like Walmart, makes my body quake. Well, as soon as I stopped taking things, as little as I justified them to be, I also stopped losing things, and my luck came back full force. I moved to LA to get far away from that guy, and then I won tickets to a conference, and the rest is history. All this happened before I had learned any of the universal laws of attraction or the principles of luck. I just really believed I was lucky. And in a sense, that's really all it takes. Actually, that's all it really takes to be or do anything. The wholehearted belief that you can. It's how Olympians become the best in the world. It's how millionaires climb to the top. It's how people heal their bodies and escape fatal diagnoses. And it's how you get lucky. The problem is, most of us have so much subconscious programming about who we are and what we're capable of that getting to the root of your beliefs is the hardest part. So that's what we're talking about today. Our guest is Dr. Gay Hendricks. He's served for more than 40 years in relationship transformation and body-mind therapies. He's coached more than 800 executives. He's co-authored loads of books, including Conscious Loving, The Corporate Mystic, Five Wishes, and his latest, Conscious Luck. So he's here to teach us how to intentionally turn our luck around. Three key things we will learn are how self-belief can change your life and even your body, mental shifts that help cultivate conscious luck, and how to turn being lucky into a habit. And if you stick around to the end, I will tell you eight steps that you can follow intentionally to increase your luck. But before we dive in, do you wish you could have your own little mindset coach in your pocket every single morning? 
Just sign up for the Morning Mind Love for daily inspirational messages right to your inbox. I get messages from people every single day about how the Morning Mind Love is their favorite way to start their day, or that the message that came through is exactly what they needed to hear. It's kind of like your own personal inspiration oracle. Just visit mindlove.com and sign up right there on the homepage. Plus, you'll get some amazing free gifts when you do, like a free guided binaural affirmation meditation designed to rewire your brain to your highest self. And you'll get one of my favorite tools, a booklet of my personal power lists to help you gain clarity and live each day with intention. And it's all completely free. Just go to mindlove.com to sign up. Or if you're out and about, text the word MORNING to 33777. That's MORNING to 33777. And now let's welcome Dr. Gay Hendricks to the show. Well, thank you very much. I'm really happy to be with you. So to get started, tell us a little bit about you and your story. Well, my wife Katie and I have been together now for 40 years. We uh, got together in 1980 and we're both psychologists. And so we had the idea from the very beginning of working together. Katie was already well established in a private practice in California. And at the time I was a professor at the University of Colorado. I taught in a graduate program teaching people how to be counselors and psychotherapists. And we got together and have been teaching and writing and working together for the last 40 years. We've uh, published 10, 10 books, I think, on relationships, including well-known ones like uh, Conscious Loving and The Conscious Heart. And we've also um, done a lot of work uh, with business executives that found its way into my book, The Big Leap, and uh, my latest book, Conscious Luck. And so we've been um, exploring the territory of consciousness for the last 40 years or so. And uh, before that, I uh, actually, I grew up in a little town in Florida, and my mom was a writer. She was a, uh, a journalist and uh, wrote a column for the local newspaper. So I grew up around somebody who was writing all the time, and I kind of got inspired early on to start writing down little stories and things like that. So I've always been a writer pretty much from the get-go. So I um, continued that on up through graduate school, and then I got very interested in the field of counseling psychology and working with people directly. And I was lucky enough to land a fellowship at Stanford uh, when I was 25 so I could study for my PhD. So I did a lot of work there over the next three or four years until I got my doctorate. And then I went out to the University of Colorado to be a professor there. So um, mostly these days I write. I um, do most of my writing early in the morning. I wake up early around 4.30 or 5. And I also then I uh, exercise a little bit and get my blood running and meditate for a while. And then I write from about 5.30 to about 7.30 or 8 when my wife gets up. And then when she gets up, we have coffee together and that kind of thing. And then we go about our day. And uh, this is a lot of what I do. I do a lot of interviews. And especially right now, I have a new book out. So I've been living on Skype and <laughs> Zoom and other <laughs> conference platforms like that uh, lately. Um, but uh, I spend most of my life on my genius spiral, as I now call it. I don't call it the zone of genius anymore. It's too limiting a zone. So I started calling it the genius spiral. But what that means is 90% of my time, I get to do spend doing exactly what I love to do. And then 10% of my time, I eat and sleep and go around from place to place. So, But uh, most of my life is spent doing what I most love to do. And so that's essentially, I think, what I teach in my in my work is to 
help people learn to do more and more of what they most love to do. It's so interesting because when we grow up, we're in this system where we have to learn a little bit about everything. And on one hand, it seems like it's a good idea because it gives kids like a taste of all these different subjects that they might love. But on the other hand, you're then graded on it. And so the things that you don't love or that you aren't good at, a lot of times it ends up affecting the way your worth is. So considering what you teach about finding that zone of genius, do you think that it's actually a good thing that we have such a general subject matter growing up? Or do you think that we should be figuring that out earlier and allowing kids to kind of dive into that then. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to Indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Do you think that it's actually a good thing that we have such a general subject matter growing up? Or do you think that we should be figuring that out earlier and allowing kids to kind of dive into that then? Well, I'm very much of the opinion that we should be sensitive to 
children's innate genius and find things that amplify that. I tried to do that with my daughter when she was little. Uh, I noticed that she loved nothing better than assembling things and putting together pieces of cloth and solving problems spatially and that kind of thing. And so I really encouraged that in her. And we, you know, now she's an artist, a grown-up artist. And I think what I, I feel best about that is, well, I, I'm happy that anybody can make it as an artist in this particular world of ours, because it's not a, a world that uh, fosters a lot of doesn't pour a lot of money into the arts and that kind of thing. But um, so I'm proud that she can make it as an artist, but I'm also proud that she gets to spend her time doing what she most loves to do. So I feel like every sort of education should lead us more in the direction of finding out what we most love to do and doing it. And what I noticed early on, particularly in my daughter's life, is that it was real easy to see what she most loved to do. She would spend hours lost, you know, without even realizing what time it was. You know, I'd say, Amanda, time for dinner. And she'd jerk her head up and say, oh, okay. You know, she would completely have forgotten about the common things of life, like being hungry and thirsty and that kind of thing, because she would be so lost in these projects she got into. And I think we all have things like that. You know, I wasn't in any way interested in art when I was a kid. But I'll tell you, according to the family story, here's what happened on my fifth birthday. On my fifth birthday, I got a tricycle. And it was this really cool tricycle that uh, was just really sturdy trike. And so it was raining that day. So my grandmother gave me permission to ride my tricycle around her big living room, which would ordinarily have been strictly off limits, but because it was raining and my birthday, you know. And so according to the family story, what I did was I, I made a cardboard box in the corner and I got my granddad to help me write a thing on the side of it that said problems. And I went and sat in my box. I commuted on my tricycle to my box and I sat in my box and I said I was there to talk to people about their problems. <laughs> and my family couldn't understand what I was talking about because this was a little town of 10,000 people in central Florida, in the swamplands of central Florida. And there wasn't any such thing as a psychiatrist or a psychologist or anything like that. I mean, it was a town of 10,000. There were a dozen churches with ministers, but that was about it. And so where would I have gotten an idea like that? I have no idea. So I think that if we look down inside our, ourselves, we can find the thing that lights us up, that makes us go, yeah, when we wake up in the morning. Yeah, I get to do this another day of my life. I've had the great pleasure of waking up that every day now for more than half my life. And I'll tell you, there's, there's hardly anything better than that feeling of zest for life that comes from doing what you most love to do. I can totally relate to that. I spent so much of my 20s and even before that, just it was like I was trying to find the thing that was going to make me the most money. And I would look at the average salaries of things. And then when I finally stepped back and stopped trying to find some path in the world that I thought was going to take me the highest and instead just reflect and use the process of self-discovery to figure out what I really wanted to do. 
And then I just started doing those things. And I did have a marketing mindset. So I was kind of able to navigate like, okay, how does this fit in with what the market wants? But for the most part, the more I just spent trying to scratch my own itch, solve my own problems, the more people found me that had those exact same problems. (laughs) So it's funny because I think we're taught the opposite way where we've got to go like plan for our future so much, but we don't really allow ourselves to open up and, and feel where we feel the most needed or the most helpful and then just sort of attract or receive the opportunities from that place. Yes, I, I completely agree with that. And I, my personal experience also played a big role in it for me because I had the gift. I see it now as a gift. Early in my life, I saw it as a curse, but I have the gift of a childhood obesity problem. I was When I was born, I within the first year of life, I became a very fat baby, and then I continued to be a very fat kid. And it was strange because it was I was in a family where everybody else was thin. And so it was an anomaly. And so I was taken around to different medical professionals and give us, given various shots and put on diets and put on pills and everything. So there was always this wrestling match with my weight growing up. And as I say, at the time, it felt like this curse because nobody could figure out what was going on. And so eventually, I I never did solve the problem. When I was 14, they put me on this real big uh, round of uh, amphetamines and various pills and everything. And I was like cranked to the gills for a couple of years. And I did lose quite a bit of weight. But as soon as I stopped taking the amphetamines and every the diet pills, I, I gained the weight back. And so by the time I was 24 years old, I weighed 320 pounds instead of 180, which I weigh right now. And I'm six feet tall. So 180 looks good on me, but 320 <laughs> did not look good on me. And so I was 140 pounds more than I weigh now. And I, again, had the great gift of uh, an accident when I was 24. I was I went out for a walk. I was also in a very troubled relationship at the time, and I smoked heavily. I smoked two or three packs of Marlboro's a day, and things just weren't going very well. And so I went out for a walk to clear my head after an argument one day, and I slipped on the ice, and I I wham down on my back. I didn't knock myself out unconscious, but I kind of knocked myself into another sort of consciousness where about for about two minutes, I could feel, I think it was the first time in my life, I'd really slowed down to feel what I actually felt inside. And I could feel all of these layers of anger and layers of sadness and layers of fear. But what really happened was, as I was laying there, I could feel that down at the bottom of the center of all of those old feelings I had was this pure, what I call pure consciousness, which was just pure consciousness without any programming on it. And I realized in that moment that we, that that's a gift that we get as a result of being human. But very few of us realize that we have that gift because what it allows you to do is if you open up to that level, you can then redesign your life from that, regardless of what your programming has been. And so I decided in that moment to re- redesign my life as a healthy person. So for the next year, I went on this amazing sort of spiritual diet of only eating foods that I felt would feed that kind of spiritual part of me. So I discovered all of these new things like fresh fruits and vegetables that I'd never eaten before. And I 
you know, quit eating the hamburger, double malt, double French fry meal that was sort of the, the thing that I always ate. And, oh, man, I really changed everything about my life over that year, but made, made it out of little tiny decisions about, will this bite of food feed my spirit or will it feed my old obese body? So by the end of the year, I'd lost more than 100 pounds and more came off over the next few years. But that showed me that really we could reinvent ourselves kind of from the inside out. Wow. I relate to that story on so many levels. First of all, I used to have a pretty severe eating disorder, uh, bulimia, that took me a long time to overcome. And I was also prescribed a bunch of amphetamines, Adderall, and part of it fed into the eating disorder because it was also inhibiting my appetite. And so when when I finally got off of that, first of all, there was a lot of fear of even getting off of it. Like, oh my gosh, am I going to balloon up? And then when I was off of that, it got really difficult to be in tune with my body because I had had this inhibitor of my appetite for so long that then when I wasn't on it anymore, I felt like I was hungrier than usual. And it was hard for me to really discern between a real craving of hunger of something that my body needed versus something that I was just reaching for to change the status of my current emotional state or whatever it was. And so it was a really, really difficult time of like having to tune in all the time and be so deliberate and conscious and intentional with every single thing that I put into my body and going on a walk at my first stages of hunger so that I could process like, is this real or is it just an addiction? And it was difficult. Yeah. Well, I remember during that period of time, I would often find myself unconsciously heading for the refrigerator. And then I kind of trained myself to stop. I put a sign on the refrigerator that said something like breathe or something like that, because I was trying to, what I would do is just stand there in the, at the refrigerator. And instead of eating something, I would let myself feel the sensations of the hunger. And I'd never really let myself feel the actual sensation of hunger. And what I learned from that, Melissa, was that I was that oftentimes I thought I was hungry when I was actually scared. I was I would be anxious about something. And instead of dealing with that, I would eat to kind of drown out my anxiety or my fear. That makes perfect sense. It's like we're we're trying to mask the symptoms instead of letting them guide us to what actually needs to be done for to reach our highest self. I've been doing a lot of processing during this whole lockdown and every single day I've been trying to locate any triggers or what I call manifestation events, anytime that I feel a negative or positive emotion and discover the belief that's underneath that. And it's interesting because there's things since I've committed to doing this every single day, sometimes it's it's hard. I'm locked down. And so there, there's not a lot of interaction with me in the outside world. And so to find these little manifestation events might just be like me walking down the street and being triggered by something small and then actually dissecting that down to like, what's the underlying belief underneath this feeling or this craving or whatever it happens to be. And it's interesting the things that I will find, but it takes so much awareness and intention to be able to get to that place sometimes. And it's interesting because I was going through your book, Conscious Luck, and a lot of people either consider themselves to be lucky or unlucky, but 
they don't really realize that a lot of the people that are lucky are taking a lot of action <laughs> to get to that place or, or the people that are healing are taking action to get to that place rather than just sitting in the normal of what they always do and expecting something different to happen, if that makes sense. So what got you interested in, in really uncovering the idea of luck? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says, <laughs> and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small, and when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com mindlove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot mindlove. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What got you interested in really uncovering the idea of luck? Well, I think it all began with a moment when I was 14 years old, actually. And then I didn't think about it much for a long time. And then it started occurring to me again. But this thing happened to me when I was 14 years old, where I was sitting next to a kid named Danny at a movie theater in Leesburg, Florida. And for some reason, they were having a um, drawing that day where they were they put all of the tickets into a goldfish bowl with our names on it. And then they drew out three tickets. And before they had the drawing, Danny leaned over and he said to me, watch this. I'm going to win one of the prizes. <laughs> and I said, okay. <laughs> and, and sure enough, they had the drawing and Danny won the first prize, which happened to be a wristwatch. Pretty cool thing for 1959, you know, when we were in ninth grade. And so I was really impressed with that. And after the movie, when we were walking home, I said, how did you do that? How, how did you predict that? And he said, he says, it's easy. He said, I win stuff like that all the time. And it's because I decided to be a lucky person. And I said, explain that one to me. And he said, well, he'd seen that some members of his family felt lucky and good things happened to them. And some of them felt unlucky. And they were always talking about how unlucky they were. And of course, nothing good ever happened to them. And somehow he'd figured this out when he was about 10 years old. And so that's a pretty astute observation for a, a kid to make. So I thought that over. And I thought, wow, that's very interesting. And so on the way home, just walking home, I said, I'm going to be 
one of the lucky people. And so almost immediately after I had that experience, I had one of the luckiest things happen to me that actually made the front page of the newspaper because I was at a, as a magazine shop one afternoon and the magazine shop also had a section for coin collectors and I was an avid coin collector. And so I went into that shop almost on a daily basis to see if they had anything new over in the coin collector side. And so I uh, went in this particular day and there was an elderly fellow over there talking to Ned, who is the coin collecting guy. And uh, the elderly fellow had this large briefcase, kind of like a satchel. And so they were talking and I didn't go over to bother them or anything. So I didn't know what they were talking about. I decided after a while to go out and uh, go to the movies with my grandmother. She was on her way to see a Tarzan movie. She loved Tarzan movies. And so I would always accompany her to a Tarzan movie. None of the other family would go with her. And uh, so it was perfect for me. So I was going to go to the movies with uh, Granny, and I went outside of the shop to walk over to the movie theater to meet my grandmother. And there on the sidewalk was this big briefcase, the satchel that that guy had had back in the coin shop. And I looked back in there, and he was gone. And so I picked up the satchel. It was sitting next to a parking meter, and immediately occurred to me, oh, he must have put it down to put meter money in the meter and then gone off and left it behind. So I took the satchel back inside the shop, and when I took it back in, Ned, the owner, his eyes popped. He said, Where, where'd you see that? And I said, oh, it was on the sidewalk right out front of the shop. And he said, oh, my God, that belongs to old Mr. Blah, 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 and uh, I'll, I'll keep it for him. Well, it turned out that the elderly man and his wife had gone to a restaurant and had lunch, and suddenly he realized his satchel would miss, was missing. And so he actually called the police and had the restaurant locked down and everybody searched and everything for the for the coins. And then he came back to Ned's shop to tell him about it. And Ned handed him his uh, his briefcase. So to make a long story short, I was at the movies when all this happened. So I didn't realize till later. And I came back to the movie uh, from the movies to Ned's shop and <laughs> walked into this turmoil of activity. Everybody saying, oh, my gosh, where have you been? Where have you been? <laughs> and uh, so it turned out that the gentleman had had to go back to Tampa where he was from. So he wasn't there. But several weeks later, I got a complete set of buffalo nickel, uncirculated buffalo nickels, which was my specialty at the time. I really loved um, buffalo nickels and I had part of a collection going. But he gave me a full collection of them, which was at the time worth probably thirty five or forty dollars. But now would be worth probably five or six hundred dollars at least. So it was a big item for a kid of my social economic class to get. So that was the first thing that happened to me right after I reconceived myself as a lucky person. So I got a gigantic reward for it. And that's what I want people to do with uh, the Conscious Luck book, because it has these exercises and things you can actually do in it that kick up your luck factor. And so we have eight different ways to do it in the book. And uh, but even if you only did one of them, they they work amazingly well. So I really want people to perform the world's largest conscious luck experiment with me over the next year or so. I completely agree with the whole believing you're lucky or really just feeling into that vibration because I am one of the luckiest people that I know. <laughs> My husband like can't get over it because I'll go somewhere and there'll be a raffle and I'll just say. I'm going to win. And it's not every time. I get a certain feeling when I know I'm going to win, but I win things way more than anybody I've <laughs> I've ever met. 
And even like I dated somebody that had a gambling addiction at one time and I would walk in and, and I'd be like, oh, I'm going to win today. So I'd go straight to the high limit room and come out with thousands of dollars. But it was only a feeling that I got about 20% of the time. And then I would just not even <laughs> try the other times. But it's interesting because one day we were up in Big Bear, my husband and I, and we had chains and on our tires because it was snowing. And we were actually stuck in a spot that like, we were really glad we had chains. But when we stopped, we realized one of our chains was missing. And we're like, how are we even going to get down the mountain? Like at the time we were both kind of financially strapped. There, there had been a lot going on. And it was so crazy because we, we decided to join hands and just be like, okay, well, let's raise our energy a little bit. We're a very woo-woo type couple. <laughs> and, and so we held our hands together and, and we're just like, okay, everything's going to work out fine. Like something's going to happen. And immediately after that, we turn and we see another black Honda. We drive a black Honda and it's driving away. And one of the chains just falls off of the tire and they keep driving away. And we're standing there and I like start waving at the car to try to get them to stop. And they just drive away. So we're standing there and we're like, did we just witness one chain fall off of the exact same car that we have. We sat there for about 30 minutes to see if they were going to turn back around and nobody ever came. And we, we were able to use the chain to get down the mountain. But it's funny because in certain moments, I think what happens is a lot of people will be in some different vibration. Like in that situation, we could have felt into stress instead. There had been a lot going on that day and we were kind of stressed out, but instead we chose to kind of get together and collect ourselves and then approach the world from that energy. And it made all the difference. And so I'm wondering, is it just as simple as making a decision or what are some of the other practices that you recommend that help people to shift their vibration a little bit like we did? Uh, before I do that, I should tell you that you should play a song during that story called Unchained Melody. <laughs> That's my mom and my stepdad's wedding song. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, well, the first thing is simple willingness. Willingness doesn't cost a nickel and it changes everything. Because the moment you get willing to have an experience, it opens up potential that wasn't there before. So wherever you're listening to this message right now, just know that you can, in this moment, get willing to be luckier than you've ever been before. It's something that you can control in yourself. You can consciously open yourself to becoming more willing to be lucky. That's a starting place because willingness and commitment are the ways to begin any change project. First, you have to be willing. You know, like when I lost the hundred and some pounds, I had to first be willing to do it. There was a moment when I was and there was a moment when I wasn't. And then I shifted over into, OK, I'm willing to reinvent my life from a very different place now. And that started a change process that went on very intensively for several years with losing the weight and everything. And I gave up all my addictions like to the cigarettes and that was, you know, a, a tough few years of letting go of all of those kind of that stack and pile of addictions. And so, but at a certain point, those didn't bother me anymore. And suddenly a new problem came up that I wrote about in The Big Leap. You're probably familiar with my idea of the upper limit problem. And the upper limit problem is 
the tendency to sabotage ourselves unconsciously when things start going better, when we get a breakthrough into new territory, I noticed that a lot of people would find some way to get sick or have an accident or create an argument or do something that kind of knocked them back down to where they were before. So they didn't get to enjoy what they experienced, the breakthrough they'd experienced. And I started calling this the upper limit problem because it was as if we had a thermostat setting on how good we could feel, how much love we could enjoy, how much success we could embrace. It, it was as if we had thermostat settings on that. And then when we got to that thermostat setting, something would kick off and we would punish ourselves and bring ourselves back down. So I began to look at that issue and study it in various people and myself. And I found that it was based on certain fears that people have. And I found that once people started exploring those fears consciously, those fears lost their grip on them and kept them from having the upper limit problem. But a lot of what's required in life is to kind of take yourself on as your biggest project and your best friend. You know, because as you open up to learning more about yourself, what triggers you emotionally? What are the limiting beliefs you have? As you inquire into those kinds of things in yourself and make it make that what your life is about, a lot of the other things just fall into place. So the most efficient thing you can do to create more abundance and love in your life is begin to examine what the core limiting beliefs are that you're carrying around. And, you know, I, I don't know if you found this in, in your work, Melissa, but I've only I found that there are only a very few, really a handful of big fears that people carry around and the limiting beliefs that go along with them. The biggest one probably that most people feel, and I've worked with movie stars and Grammy winners and you know who, and even the very highest level of society, people that are winning big awards for their genius, carry around a lot of these old fears and limiting beliefs in themselves. So your status in the world doesn't matter. I started working with juvenile delinquents 52 years ago. That was my first job. And they're exactly the same as the famous actor I was working with the other day. Exactly the same issues. And the fears go right to the center of ourselves. One is the fear that there's something fundamentally wrong with ourselves. You feel guilty about something and you can't exactly figure out what you did bad. But there's this feeling that you've done something wrong, that there's a fundamental flaw in you. Not everybody has that, but that's the one I've probably encountered most in people. A second one is a fear of going to your full limit because you feel like that would outshine other people and that wouldn't be a good thing. And so many people carry around a way of dimming our own light so that we don't. We're afraid that if we shine too brightly, it will hurt other people or steal love from them that they need worse than we do. And so that that feeling of kind of turning down our light, of, of not outshining other people, that troubles a lot of us. And some of us, of course, have been stung by old survival skills. I mean, survival fears that we've needed to develop skills for. And, you know, things like 
survival and things like abuse and things that are of the heavier nature of childhood experiences. And often those put a negative belief in our heads that somehow there's something wrong with us. Whereas there's nothing really wrong with anybody. It's just the way you present yourself and the way you think about yourself. And so once we can begin to inquire underneath with our God-given consciousness, inquire underneath all of those old programs, you find that there is this magic place I'm talking about called your pure consciousness, that it's the center of everything. And once you can kind of peel off enough layers to feel that on a daily basis, life becomes a magical experience of creating one benign outcome after another for yourself and the people you care about and the community you serve. I went through that whole process. And I remember in the beginning, I felt like I was faking it. It's like I would uncover something that I'm like, this must be a limiting belief. Is it even the really the one that's holding me back? And I would read a lot of books. And so I'd follow the different processes that I was presented to try to uncover them and move from there. And in the beginning, it felt like I was just kind of going through the process. And what's interesting is then I know, started noticing changes. And I remember being like, wow, I really felt like I was faking this. And all of a sudden, I am like surging ahead in this new project, or I'm actually accomplishing things instead of stopping things before I finish. All these little tiny things. And the more I noticed, now I'm in a place in my life where I believe so wholeheartedly in the process that it's so worth it. It's motivating to sit down and do all this processing work, which is why I've been spending so much time doing it during this lockdown. Because I'm like, this is like this little practice of magic that I can do in my life. But what I've also found is that a lot of people teach about just really finding that alignment with uh, these mental shifts. But they don't necessarily address the habits that go along with them. Like they teach that the habits will just start to melt away when you shift your beliefs. But have you found that there's extra work or what's your process for not just doing the mental shifts, but also aligning them with actual behaviors and habits that you're performing in your day-to-day life? Well, I think one of the things that we all need to embrace is the idea that life itself is our teacher. Life is our spiritual teacher. Life is our You know, if we're in business, the business of life and the life of our business is our teacher. We need to open up to embracing in every moment the possibility that every moment can reveal to us more about our own genius and and reveal to us more about how to serve other people. See, I think that at our core, well, if you look at the first year of life, for example, where a lot of our basic patterns begin to show up, you'll see that human beings go through a process of unity and individuation, union and individuation. We get close, then we go sleep. Then we come eat and we get close and then we go rest. We later on in the second six months of life, we hug close to our caregiver, a parent, usually, and then we go crawling off to experience space on our own. So throughout life, we go through a process of union and individuation. And in our relationships, particularly, that becomes important. 
because in relationship, both of those pulsations have to be honored. When Katie and I wrote Conscious Loving way back 30 years ago now, that was the the first basic observation that we pointed out in this book, that you really have these twin pulsations in any relationship, one that is extremely focused on creating connection with another person, and another that's just as keenly focused on creating connection with your deeper self. And it's extremely important in a close relationship because people are going through those phases at different times. Not everybody has a symmetrical you know, ballroom dance experience. Sometimes it's more like a slam dance because one person is trying to individuate while another person is heading for union, is seeking union. And so unless you know that about the pulsations of relationship, you're handicapped because you, you're missing out on one of the main things in the process. So once you understand that, though, you find ways in a relationship of honoring both people where they are at each given time. And so there's plenty of overlap there. It's never, once you get familiar with it, it never has to be a problem again. So I'm, I'm bringing all that up because we need to go to the absolute center of these problems that we're talking about. And all of them have to do, I think, with with something that's going on in the universe itself that we need to participate with. And that is that for millions of years, organisms on planet Earth, like us, various other organisms, do the very same thing, which is we contract toward the center when we get scared. When we feel under threat, we tighten our muscles and pull toward the center. So there's an act of contraction. We do the same thing from top to bottom too. The muscles on the back of our neck contracts, our belly muscles contracts, and we literally get shorter. We contract toward the center from a vertical direction. So what I'm getting at is that through millions of years of evolution, a whole bunch of species, including us, have evolved a way of contracting under stress. Now, here we come along human beings, and now we have the capability of learning to expand under stress. Sure, our belly muscles may be contracting, but our awareness can be actually expanding to provide a larger container that feels that. And I think we have you know, people who already do that are able to expand in times of stress rather than get smaller and contract toward the center and hide and get defensive. So that's what I'm focused on at this stage of evolution and this, this stage of the current dramas that surround us out in the material world, out in the world of bugs and viruses and things like that. I'm focused on expanding as other parts of me by nature might be contracting, but it's expanding my awareness and trying to open up to, hmm, what is the universe really doing here? What is going on in this larger field that we live in? And so I think um, that might be actually a place to wind things up, Melissa. (laughs) (laughs) So let me ask you before we go is, 
What are some of the ways that you can do in the moment where you feel yourself maybe contracting, maybe you're triggered by what's happening outside or you're fearful of the future? What are some really practical things that we can do in that moment that will help us reach a place of expansion? Great question. And the reason I say great is because when you come to the Hendricks Institute and take one of our seminars, you can get a wrist band, a little silicon wristband, a very attractive little wristband. And what it says on it is breathe, move, love. And when you're stuck, when you can't think of anything else to do, when you're contracting, you have control over three things. One is you can take a conscious breath. Even if you're feeling very contracted, your breath is under the control of both of your nervous systems, both your automatic nervous system and your central nervous system, your conscious nervous system. So you can consciously <sighs> take a big breath. The second thing you can do consciously is you can move your body a little bit. You can move, get it unstuck. So breathe, move. The third thing is the most comprehensive thing at all, which is of all, which is love Love yourself as you are at any given moment. Love as much as you can from wherever you happen to find yourself. Because love really is the only thing that can, can embrace its opposite. So you can love yourself for not being able to love yourself. And the paradox of that is immense because it tells us that love is something that goes beyond into a different realm of being. It's our entry portal to a different way of being. The things I talk about in Conscious Luck are all entry portals into this other way of being, which is naturally lucky. It just, it's where luck comes from. And so once you, as we say in the book, you open up your sails to the winds of luck. Luck is not like a lightning strike. It's like a wind that's there all the time. And if you know how to sail properly, you can get some really good experiences by following the currents of that wind and letting that support you and steer you. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom with us today. For listeners who are resonating with you and want to learn more about your teachings and, and get more of that wisdom, where's the best place for them to connect with you online? Two good places. One is for the new book, ConsciousLuck.com. And I recommend that highly because if you buy your book there through Amazon or one of the other uh, booksellers at ConsciousLuck.com, you get two guided meditations, audio meditations that we highly recommend one three-minute one in the morning and one three-minute one in the evening. And so it shows you how to get those there, and you can just download them when you get the book at ConsciousLuck.com. Uh, the other thing uh, to learn about our seminars and things like that, go to Hendrix.com. We're uh, doing our, our virtual creativity camp this summer, uh, four sessions of 90-minute sessions, which will be a lot of fun. We often do creativity camp around here in the summer, which is often a five-day experience, because, but because a lot of people aren't traveling right now, the, uh, uh, we've virtualized it. So we're going to be uh, uh, having fun for four weeks in the middle of the summer with uh, our creativity activities. All of the links from this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 135. Your challenge this week is to figure out where you haven't been doing so well communicating. Find that one conversation that you've been putting off. It kind of reminds me of one of the steps in AA. I'm not really sure which step it is. Maybe it's the ninth one where you have to go confront the people that you've hurt in the past. 
That's a really good use case for a tough conversation. Or is it that you've been putting off asking for that raise or asking for a little more freedoms in your job? Or maybe it's a conversation with your partner or even your kids. We all have hard conversations that we need to face. So how can you use some of the tools from this episode to approach those conversations in a different way? Sometimes it's just the boldness of getting over our fear and walking straight through the fire. I mentioned in the beginning of this episode that I used to be avoidant. What I found out though, is it is more painful in that waiting period of before I have that conversation, mulling in my head all the possible outcomes than the actual conversation has ever been. It's just easier to rip off the bandaid and get it over with so it's not taking up valuable brain space and energy, exhausting you day after day. So what can you do to be a little bolder with your conversations this week? If you know somebody who needs this episode, maybe somebody who's been avoiding a conversation with you, or maybe the person that you've been avoiding a conversation with and you want to prime them for this a little bit, share this episode. Hit the little share button or take a screenshot and share it on social media. If you haven't heard, we have a new offering, Mind Love Premium. Head over to mindlove.com slash premium to read more about it. But we have a special inner circle that will be leading facilitated discussions around books that we read, around topics of these episodes, and some fun stuff like movie nights. And as founding members, you have direct influence in different offerings of this premium membership, plus founding member prices that are locked in forever. So go to mindlove.com slash premium to find out more. So as always, thanks for giving your mind a little love today, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into Your Higher Frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week. 